0: Hey, Craig Fuller. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Matt. Good to be here.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's fun to reconnect. It has been a little while since I left the world of uh, supply chain and freight, and you are still in the thick of it.
1: <laughs> I am. Yeah, even more so, perhaps, than than what we, uh, than what I was when when you were sort of in it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, for, for those that don't know, I, I'm really excited to have you on because Freightwaves is a name that, uh, in, in that world, and, which was my world for you know 10 years or so. Uh, Freightwaves is a very, uh, I don't know, it's just a growing brand that is uh, really exciting. And I wanted to have you on because I think there's probably a lot of folks listening to this who aren't from that world. And uh, understanding how you built a business that is a combination of media and tech, um, I just think is is really interesting. And of course, there's the financial angles as well. So why don't I introduce you? Craig Fuller is the uh, CEO and founder of Freight Waves, uh, which is a, I mean, I'll just say, you actually do a better job describing it than me, but I will say a, a media uh, and tech company. I think of you guys often like a Bloomberg, um, if you will, for the uh, logistics space. And you guys have an incredible... Um, view into the world of freight and volumes and shipping. And for those that are not in this world, essentially, it's a, when you see trucks driving down the road, um, Craig's uh, business probably has some data on that, as well as how much traffic is flowing and just the whole commercial uh, pulse of our company, uh, of our of our uh, country. Um, so yeah, uh, welcome. And I hope you feel free to do a better job of describing uh, your business for folks that are listening. I'm trying to do the layman's version.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think you you know that I think oftentimes called the Bloomberg of Freight. So you think about logistics; it's a nine point six trillion dollar industry globally. Uh, so it's it's obviously a really important industry. Uh, you know, forty percent of the U.S. economy would shut down if there wasn't access to logistics. And so logistics basically is the liquidity of the uh, the physical goods part of the economy. So it's how do you move product from point A to point B. And then how do you manage inventories, procurement, et cetera? And so what we're focused on is providing information, media, and data to companies that are providing the services of logistics. So our customers include people like UPS and FedEx, DHL, all the way to uh, very small mom-and-pop trucking companies, uh, people that ship things like you know, an Amazon or a Walmart or a P&G. Those are the folks that are tuning into our content and uh, also the folks that are buying our data.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and um, also something that I learned, um, it was new to me, was just how fragmented the industry is. You think of UPS and FedEx and those guys are the big brand names, but there's a very long tail of, of, uh, of both shippers and um, carriers, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, FedEx has less than 1% market share. GHL is the largest global logistics company, and it's probably around 1.5%. Of, wow. of total logistics movement. Um, and so a lot of people just don't realize, as you pointed out, how fragmented. I mean, we think about how dominant uh, FedEx and UPS uh, are here in the United States and DHL is globally. It's, uh, it's you know, Obviously, these businesses uh, have massive scale and yet they're a very small piece of what happens. And and frankly, what people don't realize about logistics is, you know, most of the routing decisions happen within a couple of days of the shipment itself. And so companies, while they may have a preferred vendor or may have agreed to a rate with their primary supplier or a couple of suppliers, and usually the larger high volume uh, shippers or people that ship things, don't have just one provider they use a bunch of different ones for different uh, special needs uh, and perhaps to keep it competitive uh, what ends up happening is most of those transactional decisions, routing decisions are made within a couple of days uh, before the shipment. Yeah. And so they're constantly dealing with this sort of fluctuation and supply and demand. You're constantly dealing with disruptions. And certainly yeah. if you saw what happened during the COVID crisis, I think everyone can relate to this as you walk into your grocery store and there's no meat or there's no uh, you know, uh, antibacterial soap. And then the next day you walk in and there's meat, Uh, you know, the meat aisle is full Mm -hmm. and that is Mm -hmm. the magic of logistics. Um, but that's the reason supply chains are, are constantly under duress is companies are only keeping a finite amount of inventory and it's hard for them to understand and project all of the demand that may take place, especially when the world is constantly full of disruption.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, um, I'm glad you brought that example because it is one of those um, situations where you don't, you know, a lot of people who are probably listening to this understand that, wow, it's amazing that websites even work, web applications even work because everything underneath them is like all these packets and this data and these frameworks and all these things that have to hinge together. And what I learned uh, and what you pointed out is like physical logistics in a lot of other ways too, it's also kind of a miraculous system, right? Where... The fact that that ended up, the meat ended up there the next day, you know, just depended on so many moving parts and so many decisions, um, and so much that happens, I wouldn't say in a fragile way, but a lot of stuff is just in time and, um it's just amazing that it all works. And I, you know, I think, um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's, it's, it's an an achievement of mankind. (laughs) It's, well, I think
1: the, the, I think the more interesting achievement or the more interesting sort of uh, a viewpoint is that it does work. And Oftentimes, right. the reason the industry isn't remembered or even thought about by most people outside of it is that it works and we take it for granted. So take these, yeah. you know, take COVID, you know, the lack of certain resources, all of a sudden logistics professionals, people like, oh, these guys are on the front line. These girls are on the front line. They're doing stuff that's really valuable for us. Right. And there's a certain level of appreciation that has taken place uh, that yeah. did not exist before because they realized how critical uh, these these uh, these individuals were and I think oftentimes we take it for granted and the reason we take it for granted is it works so beautifully and so often and you can look yeah. at the news around the election and the postal service and look I'm not going to get political because this isn't the right forum for it but regardless of what you um, sort of read into uh, you know the changing of the postal service business model the reason it's causing such distress is it's the uncertainty if you make changes to the business model, uh, nice. It's the uncertainty of what happens, and I think because mm-hmm. of that, we're so used to getting our mail, getting packages and parcel, and if you're in you know sort of bigger logistics, getting trucks, when we expect them to show up that we just take it for granted and we don't think much about it. But there's this yeah. entire industry that, you know, uh, employs so much. If you look at the number one employer in the United States uh, in 29 states uh, around the country, uh, it's trucking and truck driving jobs are the number one job in 29 states. And so you look at that. These are really important jobs that people are doing every day. And nobody thinks about it because we take it for granted yeah. and we yeah. take it. At, and that's because the, the industry works so beautifully. Even though it's mm. all stitched together, it's like the right. internet. If you right. think about how the internet works, you know it's very fascinating. I think we're all still in awe of the internet because we grew up. At least my generation. You know, I'm 41 years old, and Matt, I mm-hmm. I, I don't know. How, uh, you're 38, I mean, you I, right? So right you. you're, yeah. you're, you're you're you and I are both of the same sort of generation, and we're sort of still in awe of the 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 internet because we grew up without it. And we look at our kids and they're, you know, they'll never know what it was like pre-internet. And uh, they'll probably take it for granted because they, and you can see this when Wi-Fi doesn't work or when their (laughs) phone, you know, I have a nine-year-old when the phone doesn't work. He doesn't understand why Wi-Fi has to be, he has to be near (laughs) a Wi-Fi router for it to work. It's because he takes it for granted because, and so all of these things are sort of playing out. And I think logistics, the reason um, it's so miraculous is because it does work.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and so to segue into into Freight Waves in, in your business, I kind of think of just to extend that uh, metaphor, you know, uh, think about AWS or the cloud and DevOps, we're all familiar with and, and, and we, we're also familiar with elastic pricing and reserve pricing and ways you can lock in resources and also just be at the mercy of supply and demand for resources and pay, you know, spot rates. Well, it turns out that in the world of logistics, procuring resources in terms of someone to carry your goods uh, has a similar dynamic where supply and demand is constantly affecting what things cost and what it costs to move something down the road. And your business, uh, at least part of it, is uh, providing information to people who are on the front lines of those decisions and helping them to um, essentially be at the right, how would I say this, essentially uh, uh, buy low and potentially sell high in terms of their- uh,
1: it's all about price. I mean, certainly price is important, but it's also, you know, a lot of the data that we track has nothing to do with rate or price. A lot of it is just mm. how do we help them manage their uh, the capacity? And we're tracking across the whole global economy. And so we're looking at supply and demand. And what we're able to yeah. do is understand how these things are disruptive, uh, how they should be thinking about capacity planning, how they should be thinking about resource allocation, how they should be mitigating risk. No different than if you're managing an AWS account, you're trying to figure out how much capacity do I need? And you have to yeah. project out, uh, you know, very similar to what you're doing with your with your SaaS product, Matt, is you're helping companies understand the fundamentals of their financials and plan, make plans and forecast out. It's very similar, except that we're doing it in the physical goods and the logistics industry. Uh, using data that is across the physical element. If you think about it, in the internet, it's it's quite easy to get access to data. And then what, what really enables businesses uh, that, you know, the products that like what you're building is you're helping people forecast that data uh, and make decisions out of that data. Uh, in the physical goods part of the economy is data may exist, uh, but it's not brought together in a central sort of data and the analytics platform and that's what we're we've essentially built
0: yeah yeah no I, and I appreciate the distinction too it's like the, there's there's also you know and I'm sure somebody at, at Amazon can uh can roll their eyes at this because it is finite but it, it does seem a lot less finite than when you're talking about how many trucks are going from point a to point b today um there's just there's only so many and um there's a competition there too right
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a, you think about in the, in the internet world is that we think about it as infinite, right? Um, but in um, the physical world, there is a, a finite amount of capacity or there's a finite amount of truck drivers. And yep. so that is what you're constantly dealing with is this sort of mismatching of supply and demand. And because the margins, you know, in, in the AWS world or in the internet margins are, you know, probably in the seventy to eighty to ninety percent uh, ratio. Yeah. So it doesn't really cost much for Amazon to sort of turn turn up a new server and sort of sell that capacity. But in the physical goods part of the economy, trucking you know, is operating in the 90% uh, cost of goods, or you're talking a 10% margin. And so because of those very finite margins, these trucking companies don't go hire drivers more than they have uh, demand, and they don't go buy mm. trucks when they don't have demand. And so there's this constant battle of supply and demand, which we don't understand in the internet economy, because basically, I can run a website, and it costs me a same, almost the same amount of money, to have one person visit the website is it does a million. And so I don't really think about every yeah. incremental user costs money, which is why SaaS is so magical and why it, the Internet is so magical, because the margins just are, are so, so expansive as you scale in the physical goods of the economy. It's completely different where there is a finite cost of goods sold. That is directly tied to the revenue element, and, and so it, it 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 does matter, and that's why companies are so sensitive to understanding what's happening. That's why the data, frankly, is so valuable.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and that's a great segue because I, I wanted to give folks a primer on uh, on the space that you're in. Um, and uh, with that set up, I think we really fun to talk through is um, I think of it as two parts, kind of customer journey. So somebody who we might have to go back in time a little bit, but somebody who maybe never heard of you guys just learns about you guys sort of, where does that sort of happen? How do they hear about you? Uh, you can talk about present day too, how this works. And then, um, you know, I'm really trying to help people who listen to this understand how businesses get built and how they work. So, you know, I'd love to understand how, you know, you guys have a sales team, but you also have a lot of digital products. Um, you also, and I really want to make sure we talk about this, uh, have done an amazing job of, uh, creating conferences and venues. And and I'm sure in the COVID era, it's, you've had to, to completely, um, update, let's say your way of, of managing that. But, um, I, I just think it'd be really fascinating to hear about how, yeah, how do you guys acquire customers? And then can you talk us through just, um, the sales effort and, and just, yeah, how you guys operate. Um, and maybe before we do that really quick, can you give us a sense for, uh, just roughly the size of freight waves, however you'd like in terms of either people or, yeah, any way you want to give us a, a sense of scale?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty transparent um, CEO and, and founder. And so the interesting thing is um, I have no problem giving out revenue numbers and, and margin numbers and, and employees because I'm in media. And anytime we hear something, mm. we sort of run with it. So it's sort of hypocritical. If you think about a core of our business, <laughs> and I'll walk into this is, uh, you know, of our revenue is tied into media, which is all about taking information and essentially taking and putting context to it. Uh, That's what a media business does, making Mm -hmm. it interesting and entertaining at the same time of informing. And so if you look at our business in terms of scale, it's about a $19 million run rate business today. If you broke up that revenue, 11 million of that would be in media, which is basically advertising driven uh, sponsorships. Uh, and I, uh, I can break that down in a little bit further in a second. Uh, and then 8 million of it is in ARR, about eight and a half today is in, uh, mm. uh, ARR. So it's about a 19, um, dollar, uh, run rate business, uh, growing about 250% year over year. So we'll, we should double. Um, so if we, if we did this podcast this time, you know, in September of next year, uh, the business will be on uh, a trajectory to hit forty million in twenty twenty one, is what we what we believe. Wow! And so, um, a lot of organic growth, and again, media. So, if I sort of described it to someone on the outside, is effectively we're a content supported SaaS business. Um, that term is is starting to pop up. People are starting to talk about content marketing, mm. content uh, distribution, uh, but we do it as a business, and essentially. Um, content as a service is the best way to think of it is effectively what we do is we've we've created this business model i think bloomberg is is constantly a sort of a comparison to us and in fact the folks at bloomberg have compared us to if you you know we have a relationship mm-hmm. with bloomberg and they've said oh you're the bloomberg afraid like to them yeah. that makes sense and to a people who understand bloomberg's business model it makes sense and effectively what bloomberg does is they you know, they have this very large media arm, which is how most people, they have 2,500 journalists, they're massive in terms of, uh, of providing editorial coverage of everything. Everything, you know, most people don't realize this. Most of them, most people think of them as a financial, uh, uh, you know, providing information and news to financial services, but mm-hmm. they have a very large political uh, news arm. They have a very large sports news arm, believe mm-hmm. it or not. And so they're covering stories that have nothing to do with with business per se, but, but are sort of uh, cultural elements and so yeah.
0: um,
1: they they go pretty expansive but what we do is we we use we've about 30 journalists and, and about 20 analysts that are providing content and information uh, about logistics and how logistics logistics is impacted and how supply chains are impacted um, so the right. company's about hundred and forty 150 employees 50 of which work directly in the content production part of our business uh, and um, Uh, And so that's what they're effectively doing. And what we what we're actually doing in terms of monetization is we're taking our data product that brings uh, basically brings information to our journalists and our journalists are then providing context Mm -hmm. to the data. Very similar again to Bloomberg is a great example of that is that basically they're helping uh, what our journalists are doing is twofold. One is they're. Uh, bringing the data to life. They're bringing context to the data, which helps people want the data, right? They want to have access to that data, but it also helps inform the story and it helps uh, helps give some, some proof points to the stories that they're producing. And that's effectively what we do. And then we sell advertising, non-competitive advertising, to companies in our space, in the logistics space broadly, that want to reach other logistics professionals. So a lot of them are vendors, like technology vendors to logistics professionals, or perhaps they're a trucking company that wants to reach truck drivers for recruiting purposes, or someone Mm -hmm. like Amazon that wants to uh, recruit independent owner operators to come into the logistics network, or perhaps Mm -hmm. shippers, people Mm -hmm. that ship things. And so we're selling advertising to help essentially... Uh, pay, uh, A, generate a margin and B, what it does is it it helps us create a very efficient top of the funnel for our SaaS business because effectively we're putting out so much content about our SaaS business that's free, that Hmm. is being paid for by advertising. And that helps people say, oh, I want this SaaS product. I want this data. Uh, and, And they essentially go buy it. I
0: love, I love that flywheel or that, that feedback loop that you have between the two. And I think it's it's funny, in the SaaS world, there's a lot of talk about content marketing and long form and all these things. And it's always, well, usually, um, unless I'm talking to you right now, it's a, we do that, of course, but it's kind of like, yeah, we write a blog post per month or per week or even per day or whatever it is. But I mean, what you're talking about is... It doesn't even it's not even the same. It's a it's a media business, right? And yep. it's a it's a pillar of what you do, not a yeah, we do content marketing for our SaaS products. Like, no, we we do media and um I'd love to understand like how how the heck did you start that from from scratch? Like what were your early hires to start <laughs> that and, and how did you make the decision to go um that long into it as opposed to, yeah, let's write some blog posts, right? Um, yeah.
1: Well, I, I, Matt, I, I think, you know, I never set out to build a media business. It was never in the original business plan. In fact, when we raised our first round of institutional capital, it didn't even make the pitch deck. But but the story is basically the original idea for Freightways was to create a futures market for trucking. And it was this concept of of letting people buy and sell positions, financially settled, not physically settled. Positions of speculating or hedging the direction of spot trucking rates, and tr- trucking rates are very volatile. You can you can have in a given week, you know, twenty to thirty percent volatility on a single lane. So it's it's a pretty volatile market. It's massive. You know, it's a seven hundred billion dollar market, and so there's a lot of volatility uh, in the freight market. And for those reasons, I set out to create a futures market. Um, now, the things that that in order to build a futures market what you effectively have to have is this ecosystem of people willing to support it is it's you know the the whole success of any type of uh market where there's speculation and financial markets is you have to have people that a believe the market is going to be successful and it's liquid and it solves a problem and the best way to create liquidity is evangelism and education so obviously Having a mm. strong information and putting out a lot of information about those markets is important. So one of the things we tried to do was get uh, PR. Um, we, we actually reached out to a lot of the major media outlets in uh, national media, and they wouldn't pick up the story because they didn't understand the combination of trucking and future <laughs> seems a little difficult um, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And then uh, we started reaching out to industry media who also wouldn't pick up the story. In fact, our local newspaper in Chattanooga, Tennessee, not a major city, wouldn't even carry the story on our in an announcement about this product. You would think it would be like a hometown story. Wild. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so they just, they couldn't understand it. Nobody would. And I think hindsight sort of 2020 is, is a difficult story. Um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we, hmm. we ended up talking to some publicists and PR agencies that uh, also blew us off and they're like I I this is a really difficult topic it's not something I'm willing to undertake we got a hold yeah. of one who had taken on some venture capital back startups and he said look I'll take it but it's 40 I I want a retainer of $40,000 a month because I got to build <laughs> a whole process and we're a bootstrap yeah. startup in these days and they like that's ridiculous yeah. so we yeah. ended up putting out and he said sort of his what I would do if I were you is hire someone to to write Social media post. And so the original idea is very similar to what a lot of SaaS companies, as you've described, uh, set out to do is create content on a regular cadence. And so we posted this job, and one of the journalist uh, editors from one of the major trucking publications, B2B trucking publications, applied for the job. Brian Strait uh, was the, the yeah. person that applied for the role. You, you probably remember Brian. I remember this. Yeah. And he he uh, took the role and he accepted it, and we realized really early on that if we were to build a, a basically build a narrative about our market is it couldn't be closely a tie, uh, closely aligned with our core brand at the time we thought that. The second thing that we realized is that if you only wrote about trucking futures, is nobody would read it. Um, and there were all these things happening logistics in the background as Tesla was rolling out a semi, the Nikola now infamous or famous, depending on your perspective, Nikola hydrogen truck Mm -hmm. was also starting to, uh, you know, it was being conceptualized. Uh, Amazon was getting into logistics. So a lot of stuff was happening. And we realized really quickly that there was all this news that was being underserved. And I talked to a lot of other founders uh, that had started freight tech startups who said, I can't get press either. Like none of them trucking media will cover my story because they don't understand. There's this sort of bifurcation. And I think it happens in a lot of industries that are are sort of traditional industries, if you will, where the mainstream media does not understand, even tech media doesn't understand the industry. So they didn't understand trucking or logistics. And then the logistics media, the trucking media, doesn't understand venture capital. And so there's this big sort of uh, area where, the, the core media of the industry is confused on why certain mm. companies have high valuations or what recurring revenue is or what a Series A or a Series they don't even know what that means yeah. uh, they don't they can't comprehend what equi- you know a Series A is versus a debt so there was this story where a company had raised a three hundred million dollar debt line and they confused it for equity and a lot of misunderstanding mm. of the stuff that happens in our uh, our industry media and so we ended up basically writing a lot of stories. And the traffic was good. It was about 40,000 page views a month. And the editor went on vacation. And he was he was the only guy writing uh, for the site. Hmm. And he had gone on vacation. And these hurricanes hit Houston. And <laughs> yeah. I had ran uh, part of my dad's company because I'd been around trucking. I had ran the FEMA disaster effort uh, as part of his organization. And so I started writing first-person accounts of what to expect when the hurricane's hitting. And the site blew up. It was like 100,000 page views and it was massive. Mm -hmm. And and Matt's come, you know, Matt, give you a shout out. The company that you had founded and ran, RISPulse, was a partner of giving us content and beautiful charts and beautiful maps of what was happening on the ground. And it was like this really Mm -hmm. sort of powerful story of firsthand knowledge from from me who had been in the industry combined with some really awesome visual effects from RISPulse platform. To really bring context uh, alive of these storms, and, and the traffic just exploded, and so mm-hmm. because of that, we realized that there was this really powerful gap in me- in freight media of firsthand mm-hmm. accounts of what was really happening, and we were making calls on the direction of the market, saying, you know, a lot of the freight media was week took weeks before they picked up the fact that when you have a hurricane, that's going to be very disruptive to the spot rates, very disruptive capacity. And we were telling these stories and they just didn't, none of the other media outlets sort of picked it up. And, and so we started mm-hmm. to build this, uh, uh, for, and then we started to sort of double down on these firsthand accounts of what was happening. And this created a really powerful following because people were like, wait a minute, this is an outlet that actually gets it, who sort of mm-hmm. has a firsthand knowledge of what's to expect, uh, what's expected. Um, and at the same time, we Brian Strait had written these stories about blockchain and the intersection of logistics and blockchain, and so I got this reputation of being because I ran FreightWaves of being the expert of blockchain for the trucking industry. I knew nothing about blockchain, but I got this reputation. People call me up, and um, and 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 somebody yeah. said, "Hey, I heard you're like the guru of blockchain and trucking," and I'm like, "Sure." Yeah. Like, sure. remember, we're a pre-revenue startup that sure. has has like a blog, yeah, the blog yeah, yeah, and this is it. It's... And he goes, I want you to come keynote our conference. And I'm like, okay. So I had okay. to like get really smart on blockchain. <laughs> of course. And I made this sort of like comment on the call that we should create a blockchain alliance, a uh, standards organization for the industry. And he's like, oh, I love it. And so he sends me this sort of like pre pre-formed press release of what their press release looks like. And he goes, we want to join your blockchain and trucking alliance. And I'm like, okay. So I we decided to create this thing. We create this community, and we're like, hey, if you come to our uh, first blockchain event, then uh, if you come to our first blockchain event, then you will uh, uh, have at you be able to set standards. And we and we thought thirty people would show up. Well, we had 150 people show up uh, at this conference that was put on three wow. months later, and we realized that basically this was <laughs> sort of the the realization that. If blockchain, this sort of obscure concept, could attract this many people in logistics, uh, then mm. the idea of a community around the intersection of technology and logistics, there was this opportunity to create this massive community. Didn't matter if the uh, uh, the, the technology framework was blockchain, it didn't matter if it was digital, it just didn't matter what was happening in our- Yeah,
0: it was just the, it was the lightning rod, right? Yeah. It was, there was this
1: need and desire of people who were focused on the development of technology, implementation of technology, and trying to understand technology in this industry that had um, never really had uh, sort of a community around technology and innovation that was coming together to say, we want this. And that was really what we determined. And we knew the blockchain thing would sort of, it was either going to be really successful and all the sort of prognosis was going to prove that it was super successful. It wasn't at all. And what we knew is, okay, so if, if this is real, we have all these people coming, why don't we double down on this community and we'll, we'll separate the folks that are sort of the blockchain, uh, uh, you know, true, true believers and people that really want to be a part of the blockchain organization. So we basically handed the association over to the members and said, look, you guys, you guys go do what you need to do around standards. And then we'll take the group that wants to be a part of this community and we'll build this whole community element to it around this brand FreightWaves. And that was essentially Hmm. what happened. And, um, Hmm. We hosted our first, so we hosted a blockchain event, it was horrible, the first one we did in November of 17, because again, we expected 30 people, 150 people to show up, <laughs> and it was just massively over-attended and under-prepared, <laughs> it, it was a disaster, like we really couldn't print things, had no, no. it was like a, the worst event you could host, and I was like, I'm not putting my name on this anymore, people were still off <laughs> of it, like, I can't believe you put this together. But yeah, yeah. we decided when we were going to do the next event, that we were going to do it on a much larger platform around mm. logistics innovation, broadly defined. And we were going to yeah. do an event with the blockchain group on one day. And then this, the day two and day three would be dedicated to logistics innovation. And mm. that's what we did. And we had at that first event, we had 700 people show up um, that yeah. were not associated with blockchain. And that became our event series as is yeah. basically and. Up until COVID hit, it was over two thousand people were project twenty five hundred to three thousand actually in May of this year were projected yeah. to come. They've been the fourth iteration of it,
0: and, and I, I, I just want to mention like, I, and I was at I don't know if it was the first or the second, but you invited me to to one of those um, FreightWaves conferences. It was one well, it was in Atlanta, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think. It was, but the thing that struck me was, um, you know, you mentioned Brian Strait and and some of the publications that already existed as in industry. Of course, there were paper publications and even online but the thing about freight waves was you went and it it was the equivalent or at least for the freight industry you suddenly felt like you were at an apple event or a a tech crunch disrupt event like the like the brand and the lighting and the this shininess like the the way you presented it i think actually just i think that had a lot to do with the interest frankly or just the ability to get people to say wow this is this is different and this is not just a this is not a tired industry right like there there's cool stuff happening and um i don't know I just sort of point out like cuz folks can't picture this the way i can i just remember is very um very high production quality um given yeah, how new it was sure. that, and, and you know that was
1: intentional, I assume. <laughs> it was it was very intentional because like I have I probably you know I've been in cells and in different capacities working for people, being a founder, and I go to I've probably been I, I can't have counted it, but I would, I would guesstimate I've been over a couple hundred events if I were to sort of calculate it. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of them suck. I mean, let's just be honest. Most events <laughs> yeah. are like you don't go for the content, you go for the networking, and even then, it's sort of like at the bar mm. is where you do most of your networking. But there's been a few events that sort of stand out. Like CES stands out because it's just it, it's almost too immersive, right? Dreamforce sets out uh, stands out mm-hmm. because of the sort of production quality of, of sell, what Salesforce does, and you and 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 they tend to in payments. When I was in the payments business, there was this conference called Money 2020. They also now watched Shot Talk as a series, and, and there was other conference called Innovate. But it was basically that technology and innovation was the focus. But the other thing about events that I don't think a lot of people realize is that there's a lot of subliminal sort of elements that go into the the production. So we, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, LEDs everywhere. Well, that's intentional. It was, it's meant to sort of show a high tech look and to give it essence. Basically you walk into the exhibit hall, there are no booths. You basically plug in a laptop and you have a kiosk and it's meant to be very tech around. The tech is the conversation, not the not the Mm -hmm. brands themselves. And so we focused on that. Uh, I had been to some payments events that were sort of built that way, but it had never existed in transportation. In fact, when we first did it, we didn't even know if it would work in this industry because it's an industry where a lot of physical elements and we didn't know if people could demo their technology in front of Hmm. a live stage. And a lot of people were sort of confused by it, but it worked. It worked beautifully. And I do think, you know, look, our our production bill is probably four or five times what a typical event would be if you were to sort to of run it downstream because you're using HD LEDs, you're renting these things. I think yeah. the stage itself is something like $200,000 to rent or something ridiculous. <laughs> it's this massive sort of thing. You've got... Sure. These, uh, but anyways, you walk in and you get this sense that you're a part of something happening. And that's what essentially freight waves has built and it's in it's true in our content today it's true in our podcast true in our video cast it's true in our animation. it's true in everything is like you get this sense and what what i think the most common feedback is hey i i was in this you got to remember we talked about this is that the industry is very fragmented what people Mm -hmm. really enjoy about freight waves is they're a part of a community that that we're all trying to navigate. This is our business and it's also our community. It's a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's bringing mm-hmm. information, which is sort of the core thesis, but it's also a community. And I think if you look at mainstream media or sort of not even mainstream, but you look at the media business, who does it well? Or people like Barstool Sports is like, I don't know if you've ever sort of mm-hmm. studied their business model, mm-hmm. but I mean, they got bought by Penn National. Penn National didn't buy it for the revenue of Barstool Sports. They bought it for the community that it had built. It was this sort mm-hmm. of like, I don't know how I would describe the, the bar It's sort of like your fraternity esque, high energy. Either the, it was like a a group for slackers or fraternity boys uh, and bros that sort of come together and sort of like sports is sort of the community, but they're talking about all sorts of stuff that have nothing to do with sports, but they have this sort of common, like these people understand me and that's what barstool Mm -hmm. sports have done. And we've tried to do in freight is like the common sort of theme is logistics that's the industry, but we're talking about all sorts of stuff, and we're bringing this community together. And I think that's what's made a the media business successful, and b yeah. has made the community successful.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Like if I so I, I worked at a newspaper as a web developer during the real estate crash, um, and it was a pretty depressing place to be. Um, and media, in that sense, was like if you'd said you know, a couple of years later, oh, media, that's, that's a great opportunity. People would be like, what? You know, like, didn't, <laughs> it, 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 that's a terrible industry to be in. But like, your point is, if you can get the community piece right, and you can differentiate on, you know, some sort of aspirations, like, I think there's an element to, I mean, this reminds me of Red Bull, uh, the drink, where yep. I think if you'd ask somebody, is there a market for another, like an energy drink that actually doesn't taste very good? Is basically, you know, super high octane sugar, water, whatever. People would say, like, no, there's there's no demand for that. But then it's like, well, turns out if you wrap it in extreme sports and a community of people who are just you know adrenaline junkies, then there is a demand for the product, which you know it's it's um it's again, like you said, it's not just the information or the product, it's the community that you're able to build.
1: I mean, you know, Red Bull and, is like people. drinking. Like caffeinated cough syrup, it's not yeah, good. it's awful. It's right, exactly. like it's, but, but, but you're you're spot on. Is they what Red Bull realized? And there's actually been a lot of case studies in this about 15 years ago. I think it was 20 years ago. Is they realized that the power of Red Bull was not. Was not in the drink itself because it's cough syrup, right? It, <laughs> it's basically building this media brand, and they've actually spun off their entire advertising unit as a separate media brand. So there okay. are companies that contract Red Bull uh, uh, that come in and and basically Red Bull creates media campaigns. But what Red Bull did that was ingenious is they said, "Look, c- you know, Coca Cola spending hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars in advertising per year. I don't know." Is probably over yeah, that. it's ridiculous because um, it, that's all it is, right? Sugar water yep. uh, with a little bit of flavoring. The brand. And, yeah, yep. and then it's just advertising after that. But what Red Bull did is they said, "Look, why don't we turn rather than turning this into a uh, rather than just spending all this money on advertising, why don't we become the source of it?" And I think, I think getting sort of how this sort of applies to any business, I think there is going to be an emergence of community as a service CAS, if you will. And I know everyone loves to put as a service because sure, the sure. multiples triple if you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, exactly. but, but I do think there's an element that we're seeing and we saw it with Barstool Sports got bought pin national. Look what it's done to their stock. Their stock's up a thousand percent. since that acquisition. I, hmm. I think what we're going to start seeing is that companies and organizations or organizations that have a strong community uh, become very interesting acquisition targets, but they also become very efficient channels for other types of businesses. Because what happens when you own a community is that your community. And we've seen this when we launched our uh, SaaS product. It was May of 2018. Uh, it was a brand new type of product it had not been uh, that had not existed in the industry, providing sort of fundamental data for the freight market. Uh, something that the industry needed, but they didn't know they needed. And what we essentially did was we created uh, these new data sets that now are sort of the benchmarks of the industry, but two years ago didn't really exist. And and the media brand essentially helped reinforce the messaging and education and evangelism around these data sets. And what we've seen come of that is that people now, uh, it's starting, that flywheel is starting to organically turn as people are looking for the data Mm. Uh, because they've they've heard about it, or they've seen it, it's been evangelized, and they uh, want to have access to it. I think that's what we're we've seen with our media brand is it, it effectively helps support that. Now, keep in mind the media brand's generating really nice revenues and frankly yeah. margins that are comparable to our SaaS business. You know, hmm. we have a media brand that's that's in the seventy percent margins which is roughly equivalent to what our SaaS business are growing at a rate that's roughly equivalent to what our SaaS business is. So it's interesting because I do think there are a lot of opportunities to replicate what we've done in freight to other industries, because if you can create a strong community and once you create that strong community, if you can create it, then you could start to sell other, whether it's a SaaS product that you own, or another type of product because the community wants it to be successful, wants to support it. Now it has to be organically tied to it. It can't sort of be something completely yeah, yep. outside the community. But sure. I think, I, I do think this model could be replicated across any uh, sort of industry.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and that's actually a good segue. I want to use the the rest of our uh, time here um, to talk about the SaaS product and just help people understand. Yeah. What happens when somebody is reading an article and they go, okay, this is like, the nth article I've read, or the you know however long I've been familiar with this brand, I I want this data for myself. What what do they typically do next, and how does your business sort of bring them into the product and and help them get signed up?
1: Well, I think very similar to any content marketing is essentially what you're doing is. And it, let me let me go a little deeper in content marketing in a second. But but yeah, basically what we're doing is we're writing articles that have context. So if we're talking about the you know, an uh, uh, increase in spot rates due to uh, capacity crunch caused by COVID. So we're covering the story. Sort of the headline is uh, COVID causes capa- You know, there aren't enough trucks to deliver goods. Or perhaps we're covering. You know, there was a point during the COVID crisis that truck drivers refused to go into New York. They just wouldn't go into the city because the, there was. If you remember, during the sort of the first stages of the U.S. COVID crisis, is that New York had these massive outbreaks of COVID and the rest of the country didn't have that. So there's this sort of concentration of COVID in the city. And so a lot of trucks would not go in the city. So we're covering this story and we're using data that's in our Sonar platform to prove it. Now, if someone reads that and thinks and and is just sort of not interested in the data, they're not going to buy it. But with the content that we're putting out, we're using our own data to sort of demonstrate what's happening. And yep. the, and then basically you're embedding in the article a link to our Sonar landing page for a demo. Um, and so what you're essentially doing is you're taking these, and this is where I think a lot of talking about content is sort of a lead. So where uh, frankly, a lot of marketers get it wrong. And, and I can read a piece of content and almost tell instantly whether a person with a marketing DNA has mm-hmm. written it or a journalist mm-hmm. DNA has written it. And there's mm-hmm. this has been, I've talked about this on Twitter and I've I, there have been people who have sort of attacked it because they're like, oh, I can't believe you say marketing people can't write uh, content. <laughs> and that's not what I mean, is that there is a very thin line, there's a very clear delineation, I should say, between how a journalist approaches a story because the story is the story versus a marketing. Mm. A marketing person has an end, has a means to the end. They're writing the story because they want to sell you a product. A journalist yeah. wants to tell you a story and the story itself will prove out regardless of what the product actually wants, wants to, really good. to say. And so the journalists are, are basically using the data to inform the story versus uh, using a story to inform the data. And, and I think that helps, uh, that's the big differentiation. So if I were to recommend, Someone listening to this podcast, um, if you wanted to build a content, uh, a studio or a content-driven business, content-supported SaaS business, then go find journalists. Now, here's the great thing about journalists: is there was a story I read about ten years ago, and this was—if you think about—there's been something like seven thousand layoffs in media uh, into 2020. Um, journalists have been laid off every day; it feels like. Uh, And journalists, there's one thing about journalists. They like to talk about journalism. Like they love their industry and (laughs) they like to talk about the role, but it's usually like doom and gloom. Like they're really depressed. Um, And, 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 and so there's just a lot of excitement in media. So they're always sort of lamenting on the state of media. Um, And one thing that's really interesting is that journalists are the highest uh, educated, lowest paid, the ratio of education to, to pay scales is actually completely different, and so yeah. a journalist is willing to take a job at half what a marketing person is because they 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 wake up every day to tell stories. They wake up every day to find the truth. You know that's their angle. Versus yeah. a marketing person wakes up to drive view. your CAC number, of your LTV that's, number. So
0: yeah, yeah, more clicks, more view. That's it's it's. Um... And I think part of that is just that the world, you know, the world experiences what the, those two people produce differently, but I don't know that the world appreciates them differently.
1: I can right? read it. You no, know, I think a lot of people who aren't in it, and I wrote this on Twitter and one of the, somebody just sort of attacked it, like, you're wrong. And I'm like, I don't know that I am. And the reason I don't think I am, I didn't make the case, but the reason I don't think I am is take a marketing person's copy someone who has a marketing DNA and they're Mm -hmm. talking about their product. Like it's very obvious that they're talking about their product and a journalist is much more interested in the story. Like Mm -hmm. the, the product will. And so that's a really hard thing for a lot of media for marketing folks to get their head around is at the end of the day, what makes an effective story is the story itself and not the product. And like, Yep. I think that's very difficult. Uh, there was this this uh, Twitter feed um, a couple of days ago that I saw where this person was like, "Why? Why don't?" Same person who attacked me for saying that marketing people this whole argument of journalists versus marketing people. Uh, I said, why don't the big brands go buy the top media outlets in their space, and and or why don't the PR agencies go buy the top media outlets in the space? And my comment to them, one person said that PR agencies couldn't resist just sending out a bunch of newsletter on a continuous, like one more is okay. My <laughs> my big sort of argument on why PR uh, uh, you know pu- uh, PR agencies typically wouldn't buy a, a media outlet and it be successful is because PR agencies are uncomfortable talking about a topic that may not be flattering to their customer, their clients, which is obvious, right? If you're in the business of, of sort of yeah. elevating brands or crisis communication, sure. you're not going to write something that that sort of indicates a, that that business is duress. And, and so it's very difficult, I think for a lot of, uh, it would be very difficult for a, a PR agency to sort of make that leap. But I think in SaaS, if you're in SaaS, there's a lot of things you can talk about. And sure. again, it's all about building those communities. That's important. And I don't think yep. you have to start with this sort of grand vision to be this massive media brand. I think you could start yep. talking about the stuff that your product does. And if your if your market's big enough, which I think every startup should think about how big their market is, that should be the most important thing they focus on. Is this market big enough? And if it's not, how do I broaden it? Yep. Um, because if you don't, you're not going to get any venture capital, and sure. your your sure. business is going to scale, scale to a certain point and then stop. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean and um they often say like, you know, you're gonna have to segment probably or or find some niche within that larger thing. And if it's too small in the first place, you know, the niche ends up being, you know, uh, non-existent or or just too tiny
1: to support um, yep. much of anything. And if you, and you can't yeah so, build a Matt, if you can't build a community through like if you can't if your audience isn't big enough for a community, chances are your product's not big enough, your the TAM that you're going after is not big enough.
0: Yeah, no fair fair point. Um I'm can you can you tell us a little bit about then uh the product, what it does and sort of how you price it? Um, now that we know how yeah, folks great sort of ar- arrive there cuz I think sales is hard um and you still have a job to do there, but uh, yeah, what is that what is that experience like?
1: Yeah, so it's so essentially um our media business creates top of the funnel as we have sort of discussed. At top of the funnel creates the opportunities. So the, so what the product does is it's a data analytics. So we think about sort of the the term BAMF, which I don't know if I should cuss on this thing, but if you think of what BAMF stands for. We'll deal with it. Yep, yep. (laughs) Badass (laughs) motherfucker. Was you like... So so it's benchmarking, analytics, monitoring, and forecasting. That's what essentially (laughs) at the end of the day it does. It used to be BAF, and then I realized we also monitor. So think about like (laughs) monitoring weather. You're you're sending alerts when there's a weather event or there's a disruption to capacity. Essentially, that's a monitoring activity. So now it's BAMF, which is beautiful. So anyways, (laughs) basically what the product does is is it, it creates benchmarking for you, so your business. Uh, compared to other competitors, or your business compared to the market, so it's benchmarking analytics. It's a whole analytics platform, so it's sort of well, Tableau for logistics, but it you know it's not as deep in terms of all the sort of functionality of Tableau. But it's meant for people who don't want to learn how Tableau works. They can all the data is already there; it's instantly available, and it's from the market. So we bring a lot of what really what analytics data and the world's fastest data and logistics sort of there. So you find out what's happening before everybody else does. And the analytics allows you to sort of see how all these different data sets and disparate data sets interact with one another. So if I'm trying to figure out what the correlation is to something, then I can do it inside the platform. So if I want to know how truck impacts rail or how air freight and truck work together in terms of demand, forecasting yeah. i can do it or the economy how it forecasts uh, trucking demand you can sort of do that so that's the analytics side monitoring is all about monitoring you know activity and that's everything from news events to weather to capacity to economic mm-hmm. cycles yeah. uh, and then forecasting is how do i forecast the business out for the next 12 18 24 months what is my business going to look like if i'm if i'm a capacity provider and in providing capacity, what's the rate that I can charge? And what's the demand for my business? And then if I'm buying capacity, what is my cost likely to look like in the next 12 months? And that's basically what it does. It's an analytics and data platform. And mm. it's available by both dashboard and API. And one of the things that I, I think we did with our uh, platform is we made it beautiful. We made it cool, right? This yeah. is sort of yep. talking about the DNA of our events is essentially everything we've tried to do is we tried to elevate... We spent more money than people would typically do, but it's yeah. meant to have really sort of beautiful charts and beautiful maps. I think you understand this yep. map from Riz Pulse, which is <laughs> just this beautiful product, gorgeous product that visualized weather data, a commoditized platform. But you had a really nice exit because you you made this really gorgeous Uh, uh, a weather platform and risk management platform for supply chain. It's the very same thing we've tried to do is find really beautiful uh, uh, visualization layers that help data visualize. And what happens is because they're so beautiful and they're so cool and they're so customizable is that people end up taking screenshots of that and broadcasting over LinkedIn. And so you start seeing these in the wild, which also just creates brand equity for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I, uh, good taste, uh, goes a long way. And it's, you know, we'll never <laughs> stop talking about why that's important. And we'll also never sort of stop failing to convince some people of that, but that's fine. That could be our little secret that's you know
1: hidden in plain I, sight. I, but I think, you know, our data scientists will argue that the data is important, right? Like they, they'll, they're fine with a flat file with a bunch of numbers in it. Mm-hmm. And that's as, that's as good as it should ever be. Like all we should do is invest in that. And it's yeah. like, no, but the, deci- the people writing the checks are not, not going to be looking at a, a bunch of code or, or a bunch of numbers. They want to see it visualized. They want to see it make instant decisions. And yeah. that's why having the beauty factor, having the analytics factor, having the ability to look at a chart and instantly understand what that chart says to you is important. Yeah. And I think beauty yeah. does sell a lot of SaaS products.
0: Oh, a- absolutely. Absolutely. So, and then uh, last question on this, and then I think we'll wrap up. How do you, how do you price it? Is it per seat? Yeah, um,
1: it's, well, or? no, it's price per enterprise. So we made the mistake of going per seat when okay. we first started. And here's the, here's the problem is we we we're like, oh, it's, you know, minimum four seats is what you must have. We would get into these arguments with these companies and say, well, I only want two seats. And you're like, right. well, minimum is four. And they're like, no, I just want two. And they sort of slice it. So we did yeah. that. We sort of approached it initially where we priced in up per seat. But what happened is we had this very large company in our space, billion dollar plus company, said they only wanted two seats. And they're like, look, I'm only paying for two seats. And this was sort of <laughs> like a taker break. Remember, we only have 20 clients on the platform at this point. And so you're like, every deal matters. Yeah, um, and we had no pricing discipline. Uh, we had no pricing because it's a new yeah, product. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. So, we we agreed to two seats, and four people show up for training, and you're like, "Wait a oh second! God. Like, what's you going on here? Paid for two, uh. but four people are here. Can you count?" So we decided <laughs> to end that because ultimately, what we're trying to do is drive to a a number, and we basically approached it and said, based on the scale of the company, is what we should charge them. So a company that has one mm. truck is getting, you know, if you think about it, at the end of the day, the decisions they're making is not about how many transactions because they don't do any of their workflow inside of our platform. They're making decisions that so a company that's got a 30 billion dollar mm. transportation budget sure. is going to make a, if they get 1% improvement on 30 billion dollars that's 300 million dollar impact to the P&L. Yeah. A guy with one truck has a $200,000 business. And if he makes a 1% improvement, $2,000. So yeah. Yeah. the economic impact of the platform is based on the scale of the company and the scale of the decisions they're making across their portfolio, not yeah. based on, frankly, on uh, uh, how many users have it. And so we yeah. decided to exit that and basically okay. scale it very similar to the way the banks do it. If you, The way typical bank software is done is, Based on assets under management, and they look and say, "Okay, a ten billion dollar bank should be priced very differently than because you because you think about like USAA. I know I know you live you live in Texas. USAA is obviously a big Mm -hmm. brand. They have two branches, right? So,
0: yeah, yeah that that makes sense. It it reminds me of uh, like I said, I was in the media business a little bit as a developer, and I remember being in the newsroom all these journalists around and I was like, what's that, what's that machine over there? Like, Oh, that's the Bloomberg terminal. We have one of them <laughs> and it <sits> over there. <laughs> yeah. And like if somebody wants to ask it a question or go over there, like they do and they get, and I'm like, Oh, okay. That's, that's how that works now. I don't think that's their, you know, obviously Bloomberg normally you've got traders and trading desks and like seat base makes sense. But if you've got a different, it's really careful. Cause like you said, if with certain segments you're selling to it's not, it's not seats, it's, you know, anybody can look at the dashboard on the on the forty inch plasma screen or L C D screen and, and make yep. a decision. Um, so you, you got true value-based pricing and is that that's essentially how that works is your sales team is figuring out a value-based price and um you know, so Pretty far much, so good yeah. in terms of adoption.
1: Yep. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I mean like our average just being, you know, talking about disclosure, you know, our average contract's about twenty five thousand dollars per contract per year. Okay. And that, that, you know, sort of the range of that is the lowest like 4,000. I think the lowest we have right now is like $4,000 uh, all the way up to half a million. Um, and okay. so there's a pretty big range and obviously a really small company is not spending half a million and a really big company isn't getting $4,000. So you could sort yeah. of figure out that you're somewhere around there. Uh, and they all tend to cluster based on the size and scale of the companies. I mean, ultimately, yeah. um You know if you're in SaaS, there's the initial sort of bringing them on board and then it's how do you expand them um and so obviously as we add new data sets or new product features or sort of sort of scale it we we Mm. want to continue to expand that yeah and does the sales cycle vary by the size or is it pretty constant you know it's actually pretty constant so here's the thing that's interesting about a community is our average if you look at our salesforce implementation It'll tell you that our sales cycle is 52 days, which is pretty efficient for a $25,000 oh, yeah. product, right? Yeah, that's good. The, the problem is that you got to remember that we have this community. So oftentimes people are in our cycle and may not realize it because there's that subliminal element of reading <laughs> our content. And sure, what sure. ends up happening is like when COVID first hit the United States, I call it the NBA moment. When the NBA shut down was sort of the the broad sort of awareness that COVID is real in the United States, and and all yes. of a sudden people came. I remember that. So take that. All of a sudden, we closed from the NBA moment to the end of March. I think we closed something twenty-five big deals. Uh, it wow. was huge for us because people were <laughs> yeah. already in our funnel, and they're like instantly, I need this data because nothing else yeah. is telling me what's happening. And so while our mm. official sell cycle is fifty-two days, um, there's this we're dripping content out for 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 oftentimes people for years. I mean, we're, yeah. we're now in discussions with companies that we talked to you two and a half years ago. And I think the other thing mm-hmm. to remember, if you have a community, you never lose a deal. Um, and what I mean by that is you may not get the deal today, but if they stay connected to your community,
0: man, you own the it, lead.
1: If you, you will. own the lead yeah. and you're giving them a bunch of content for free, eventually if they have something that you can help solve for them, they will reach out. That's been our experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to overlook you for the, for the next guy for
0: sure. Um, well, this is awesome. Um, we're coming right up on one hour, uh, which is a healthy length. And I think we, uh, yeah, we learned a ton about um, how this works. I know that I'm actually more inspired to figure out how to create content from that journalist perspective. So, um, Craig, thank you so much for joining me this morning and sharing how Freightwaves works.
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. I would say one thing if you do go down the road of creating content, there's a temptation to use like medium and, and sub I would just be very, very careful. I think owning your own URL and owning your own instance is really critical because then you get the yeah. data and you're not sharing it with some other platform. That's key.
0: So, all, all right, right Matt, Craig, thank you. Thank you so much, man. Have a yep. great rest of your day. Take care. All right, bye for now. You, bye. Bye.